I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. From the age of nine, when he overhears his parents and their friends talking about him, Shine knows that he disturbs people. His moods are volatile, his affect is strange, and there's something just a bit off about him. We meet Shy at 3.13 a.m. as he's sneaking out of his last chance boarding school for troubled kids. And what happens next on that wild night, some of it real, some of it imagined, is at the heart of Max Porter's new novel. Mr. Porter is the author of, among other novels, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which we discussed when it came out in 2016. His new novel is titled Shy, and he joins us from Bath, UK. Max, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Hi, Kerry. Great to be speaking again. Thanks for having me. You know, as the reader, we're both inside Shy's head and outside of it with his despairing parents and his very concerned therapists. And although he frightens people, I kept getting this image of Shy as missing a layer of skin that the rest of us had. I, I mean, he seems to have no... He seems to be so vulnerable and so defensive at the same time to the outside world. And um, I, I, I wonder how you thought about developing this vulnerability and this defensiveness mm. as a character. It's a beautiful way in. I mean, I think that, that we often surprise ourselves, right? And I think I wanted to get away from any creation of this character as as a kind of essay on my part about a troubled teenager written from the distance of both my adulthood, but also from the kind of safety of the novelist's perspective. And I wanted to get closer to what it feels like. And one of the things I remember it feeling like, and people have described it feeling like, and I can sort of suppose it feels like by spending time with, with unhappy people of all ages is that you don't know your own self. You don't know the thickness of your own skin and nor do you know some of the weaponry that you have within you to hurt um, and you lack a vocabulary a lot of the time. So one of the one of the ways into him in this novel was actually sort of non-linguistic. It was more a case of what he isn't saying. It was more a case of what he can't say or lacks the vocabulary to say. So it was a sort of more like marshalling the weather around him than actually building him as, as a kind of thinking, speaking machine. And that felt truer somehow. Like when I tried to sort of write about why he was feeling as he is, it felt sort of artificial or... Um, or fraudulent in some way. It felt too literary. And for a boy like this, I realized I'd need, I'd need other, other tools, you know, music and, uh, and inexplicable acts of violence and, 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 as, and, the, and the way he is reflected, you know, in the viewpoint of others. So it was a funny, um, unusual, difficult, uh, you know, painful person to create on the page. Mm. You know, I really understand what you're saying about the idea that what what looks like uh, violence and and just this thorny kind of defensiveness so often masks with a very thin layer, you know, the deepest hurt and the deepest insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I'm very good at recognizing that when I run into people like that? Are you? Right. Do you understand that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, this is a journey we're all on, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I am trying to be better, and I, and I am trying to be better than society encourages us to be about the, the, our receptiveness to different emotional states and our, our general impatience or reliance on, on, on the kind of... Um, you know, um, sort of gut reactions based based on the various biases that bombard us all day, right? You know, it's gender, skin color, age, everything. And so I, I am in training <laughs> at being at, at thinking. Hold on a minute, what is not visible here, and what might this person's story be? And I mean, being a novelist and being a people watcher helps you with that. But no, I, mean, I, I make terrible mistakes all the time, and in fact, even behaviorally, like. My son came down and said something to me the other day that he'd seen on his mobile phone. And because of my anxiety about what he's seeing on his mobile phone and broader anxieties about, you know, technology and social media and kids today and masculinity and all the things I'm interested in and sort of professionally worried about, I just totally flipped out. 
I, I just flew off the handle and, and started shouting at him <laughs> about this thing that he'd said because I was deeply concerned that he'd stumbled upon something very toxic on the internet. And actually, if I'd given him just two minutes to explain, he was trying to tell me that he'd stumbled upon something disturbing and how, how and why he understood it to be wrong and disturbing. So, you know, we're all, um, well, there's this disconnect, isn't there, between the way we think, <laughs> the way we think we see the world and the mm-hmm. way we actually do. And, mm-hmm. and, but, it, you know, there's all these performances involved. The way we are performing ourselves mm-hmm. to one another is so interesting. And, and teenagers are both highly sophisticated um, performers of a certain type of disconnect between what society expects or what their family or parents expect from them, as well as just blindfolded, you know, wordless feeling machines that 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 just could sort of career through our our expectations like you know like like buildings on fire uh and i wanted to try and see if those two things were connected or or if they were at all or you know and 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 as and as we've said you know my i wasn't useful in that i needed to take myself right out of that do you feel like as a parent you're also it caught sometimes between performing parenting and and really doing parenting, or is it always like <laughs> like a combination of the two? I think it's more yeah, it's more of a performance than we realize, isn't it? And that performance itself is structured on various different anxieties and fears, perhaps more than we would know, unless unless we're people that have you know years of therapy under our belts. And I'm not some, and I'm not that person. Um, I don't know. I suppose, um, like one, one of my, I have a sort of, I would say this is a novelist and a parent or in, in the weird sort of shuffling shambolic hybrid of the two that I now find myself being, I would say that I, honesty is my religion. And when I see, mm. um, I see so many opportunities as a parent to, to really push how honest you are with yourself and with your children, you know? Um, and, and how you sort of you, you sort of can't help but meditate upon honesty as a kind of transactional opportunity in the way you, you know what I mean? Like there's some things that you shouldn't be too honest about and there's some things that you are scared to be genuinely honest about. Um, but, you know, like, so for example, I, I had a friend growing up whose mum was a sort of tiger mum and was so proud of him. But in her description of him, she was creating a, a total illusion. This, this child she described bore no relationship whatsoever to my friend um, because she was so uh, into his, you know, he, he'll never smoke, he'll never drink, he'll never have sex before marriage. And, you know, of course, this guy was, you know, uh, <laughs> a ferocious lover from an early, you know, from an early age, a chain smoker, a heavy drinking um, party animal. And I just remember thinking like that, that, that's so interesting that her love, her great love of him and desire to protect him has in fact made her blind to who he is and that's not I, I didn't see that from a from a I wasn't judging that I just remember it finding it really interesting um so I suppose yeah I'm, I'm interested in the way also when our children perform back to us a version of themselves that has gone beyond what we feel able to understand or control it's an it's simultaneously a great gift isn't it as well as being so deeply alarming and also so so natural so much a part of there being a great generational gulf between us and these days, you know, a huge paradigm shift between us in terms of technology and communication. It's a different world. And so we can't expect to always mm. rely on the same, you know, role, you know, sort of trading of, of pre-existing role plays that, that, of, that society often kind of relies on. You know, as you were describing this friend and his tiger mom, I was thinking <laughs> I've been in the position where I am the receiver of the total distortion of what that child Mm. is it's a really difficult place to be still happens Mm. every now and then to know something so if honesty was my religion what would i do with that i take the easy (laughs) way out and stay quiet but what would i really do with that well exactly and that's why you are that's why the, the loneliness of being misunderstood is so odd isn't it the kind of loneliness of 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 have not having the community of strategies you need for that friendship or that relationship or that that dialogue it's very odd yeah that's why my secondary i say my primary religion is trees because they are such good exemplars (laughs) for for teaching us how to communicate patiently over a long period of time and just let each other grow misshapen and strange as we are you know all under the same sun Um, but one of the things that really bothers me is this comparative parenting and, and, and that's been mm, yeah. um, so exacerbated by social media, right? These kind of WhatsApp groups saying, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Did you not do this? 
And I think that it, 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 it's sort of, it's such an, obviously an addictive and alluring or and maybe even an intoxicating short term thing. But long term, as we are, as we are all, you know, as you say, share, you know, treat back to trees, as we are all sharing nutrients, developing sometimes altruistic tendencies, sometimes competitive tendencies, like it's really, um, it's not, it's so counterproductive to compare each other like that, you know, especially in, as mm-hmm. regards to the achievements or, or social behaviors of children. It's madness. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I'm rambling. So you should, you should point me back on, onto the forest path. No, 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 because I want to linger with you on trees. So this, this is what's been so interesting. Since that scientific research, and you've clearly read it, came out about the way forests and trees share their nutrients and are so connected. The writing, the, the literary fiction that has come out of that, I just finished Michael Christie's Greenwood. I don't know if you've mm. read that. He's a Canadian writer. He was on the Canada Reads list. My Canadian publisher has a copy in the post to me. It's so good. Okay. Oh, you are going to love it. And of course, Richard Powers' Overstory. Mm. This scientific research, I think it kind of catalyzed some some really interesting thinking in writers. H- have you written about trees mm. <laughs> while we're on this path? I have written about trees and I will, uh, over the next few years, build up the nerve and do the necessary mm. work in myself and in my reading to, to write the book I want, the, the book I must write before I die, which will be about trees and the relationship between humans and trees. Really? Yeah, it's my, it's my, they are my, my deepest, uh, my deepest love. The, the, the thing is, as you say, those books, the, the response in the literary community, what I love about it so much is it's, it's an affirmation of things that our indigenous uh, ancestors knew, indigenous cultures knew about. You know, the forest was central to their thinking and to their medicine and to their politics and to their strategies as, as, as human beings deeply, deeply indebted to the gifts this planet offer. And all we've done over time is lose it. And, and cutting-edge science is now just reminding us what we already knew or proving indigenous wisdom right, you know. And I, and I find that so, so clarifying and inspiring at a time of, in a time of climate emergency that, that the ways of thinking that the, that the trees allow mm. us, that forests allow us, might literally be our, our salvation as a species, as, as it already has been, because it literally is how we live on this planet. Um, do you know that beautiful Amitav Ghosh book, um, uh, The Curse of the Nutmeg? Mm, no. Oh, I'd recommend it. It's about, um, it's about colonialism and, and also environmentalism. Um, but one of the, it, it, it's, it's a devastating book in many ways and, uh, particularly actually for an, for, for English person because of the, because of its sort of relentless indictment of our colonial past, um, and particularly our, our specific tactics. Um, as a as a, as a as a colonial and genocidal force over the over many centuries, but one of the things it says in it is that um, looked at from a distance, in a sort of time lapse, if you looked at planet Earth over the tiny amount of time that human beings have been on it in terms of its deep time past, that it would appear that trees have been farming us, which mm. I love. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that's a that's a beautiful, poetic, literary, radical proclamation, mm-hmm. but based based in what we are now finding out about the way trees work. Can I ask if you've read Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, Braiding Sweetgrass? I've read Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Was it revelatory in some ways, or did you know a lot of that? Totally, frequently revelatory, but I but I knew a lot, and I'm you know you can probably guess what my bookshelf looks like. It's um. <laughs> Yeah, Barry Lopez <laughs> and Gary Snyder and Rebecca Solnit. And, um, you know, as a teenage boy, I read The Man That Planted Trees and felt that my life had gently changed. Mm. Um, I love that there's a writer called Diana Beresford Kroger, mm. who is a tree scientist, but also has an extraordinary Irish heritage. And she talks about the kind of um, Ogham alphabet and the origin of um, oh. tree mythology, but also trees as a trees as a medicinal and spiritual um, uh, yeah, sort of ecosystem, which is which is, if you destroy the trees, you destroy culture, uh, you destroy wisdom, and therefore you you destroy 
the forward motion of, of a civilization, in this case, sisterhood and matriarchal society, as was in the kind of pre-industrial Ireland. Yeah, these are my books, Kerry. You've, la- hmm. you've, you've got me. You've got me just, <laughs> just right. <laughs> One last question about this before we go back to the current book. So when you said, yeah. you know, I'm going to work up the courage to write the book that I've always wanted to write, is it fiction or nonfiction about trees and humanity and our connection? Fiction. Fiction. Wow. So it it uh, I mean I don't I don't want to jinx it right because I'm mm-hmm. I'm 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 at the beginning of thinking sort of marshalling my ideas and a few years worth of reading into a, into a shape that I think would be the right shape and it'll be pretty different from my existing books but one of my fundamental preoccupations and I wrote a short essay about the ash tree last year for Orion magazine mm-hmm. that was sort of a kind of a sort of cracking of my knuckles in this respect is how would you write about the the lifespan of a tree and the and the lifespan of a human would would you would they need different literary techniques a different toolkit you know like george saunders says that every short story needs a different toolkit you know you begin again with every story with a completely bespoke toolkit so i'm thinking what language would i need to write a 150 200 year old ash tree would it need to be scientific you know arboreal language you know the language of silver culture or would it would it potentially be a kind of abstracted poetic voice untethered from human meaning and specifically actually from scientific meaning most of all because these are systems which human beings have put on the trees or could I kind of reach for a sort of um, as I did in my Francis Bacon book thought thought about you know how language could be smeared as painters or Mm. rubbed with a rag as you know as, as turpentine and happens when it meets oil paint you know those sorts of questions what would the what would the comparable questions be for trees could I avoid a romanticism uh, or would it need to be a sort of deep um, paired back? You know, maybe the haiku is the closest way that people have written about trees. Maybe less is more, you know. So, you know, and Richard Powers asked and answered a lot of questions in, mm-hmm. in the overstory, I think. And I'm, I'm interested to sort of see which of those solutions seem right to me and which don't. And because it will also be a book about humans, I'm wondering whether how it will be a kind of interconnected um, living thing or whether it requires a sort of a, a series of deaths to be staged, you know, sort of the death of the, the human voice. Um, so these are the sorts of things I'm mm. pondering in my notebook right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And I'll do some drawing and I'll do some walking. I'll do some hugging. <laughs> <laughs> of trees, maybe and humans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Gary Miller. You're listening to my conversation with novelist Max Porter. Believe it or not, we started in this discussion talking about the the central character of his new novel, Shy, and then we got off on our love of trees. But Shy is um, <laughs> he's a teenage boy, a disaffected teenage boy. We meet him as he's sneaking out of the boarding school for troubled kids, and it's a wild night. Some of it is real, some of it is imagined, and... Um, and we're going from there. We're going to get back to the novel. Um, you might recognize Max Porter's recent novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, and um, this new novel is titled Shy. So, you know, I want to say something about, it was interesting to hear you talk about finding the right language and thinking about what to bring to bear on this next project that you're writing. I mean, you've, it seems like you've cracked the coded language of teenage boys, which I, I know you have three sons of your own, and I think you spend some time mentoring boys, troubled boys. Is that right? Mm, mm, I have, yeah. What do you What do you hear when you listen? I hear it's funny that we started on this idea of performance because what you hear often is a lot of um, bravado or or. Um, banter i don't know if, if you use banter in the same way in the states as we do here but sort of the, the um tease and yeah. um mm-hmm. like in the book i call i call it flirting's grim twin it's a kind of you know particularly this is set in 1995 this book so it's a sort of relentless and rather unattractive tapestry of uh, homophobic abuse um sexual based uh, you know mother j- mum jokes um you know the kind of the kind of mtv era I guess slightly pre-Jackass, but Jackass era linguistic violence of young people. And obviously those that care for them and those that are around them, to some maybe lesser extent the boys themselves, 
are aware that this is a sort of armor. It's 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 a it's a gesture economy that conceals real feeling, uh, and that if I can try and get to the real feeling, these people are going to be more interesting. This boy is going to be more interesting to me. But I don't just want to simply suggest that 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 behavior is is artificial. It's not. It's it's their communicative strategies. But behind it, when you dial into it, I, what I want to suggest at least, and I and I do so in the book, is that they're actually sophisticated people sophisticated human beings who are in a kind of proto aware way actually being incredibly generous to one another in terms of how do you deal with your childhood trauma uh, how do you communicate what you've been through how do you avoid a kind of diagnostic or medicinal language of curing one another how do you actually live with your, your with your pain how do you, you know, allow other people's pain to have a voice and, you know, to have a space in the room via their behavior or their anxieties, but also on, on, on gender and race and class, crucially in the UK, class is always this sort of prison that we're all locked in or locked out of. How do you get them to start understanding that they're different from one another? They've come from very different places, but they, ha- they have a universal and shared vocabulary of shame or guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of it was realizing that I, w- I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give them the mic too often. I would actually create this kind of weather for them, which is, as you say, the therapist, the teacher, their parents, the non-human world, ghosts, uh, the cultural fodder that they trade in, music, uh, magazines, so that we can feel not necessarily the explicit language of abuse or language of, of what's happened you know expositional stuff about what's happened to them that might seek to explain them but more the kind of <laughs> if we're just briefly back in the forest more the kind of underground fungal threads that connect mm. them mm-hmm. you know more the kind of invisible energies that that connect them because hopefully then those invisible energies are palpable to the reader who even though, you know, I, I don't expect my readers to have necessarily grown up in 1995 in the UK and listened to Jungle and Drum and Bass, but I really do expect and hope that they will feel this child, that they will pack this child's agony, but also his, his joy and his, his sweetness and his, and his ludicrous bad decisions sort of into themselves, that you sort of take and pack it into yourself as a reader. Um, as one might do across any other huge divide. You know, I can do that with a, I do it with a Chekhov story. I could do it, you know, I could do it with a, a 14th century Korean monk's memoir. If the, if, if the writing has shown me what is human there, then I can, I can be it. I can feel it, you know, or I can certainly feel enough to know what my differences are and therefore generate meaning between me and it. Um, and that feels like, um, it shouldn't be such a big job because this is only a few years ago. Um, but somehow that's why I wrote it as a historical novel, really, because the gulf that separates us and some of the ideological critiques buried in the book about British politics and the ideology mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of inequality and injustice, um, it feels like th- that gap is widening and widening. And one of the ways of closing that gap is the kind of universal communication that can occur in, in fiction, in novels. You know, I don't want to miss what you said about these boys are even though if you listened in, you wouldn't recognize this level of emotional sophistication, even though their Mm. immaturity leaks out all over the place. But I really hear you when you say that, because one of the things I think I understood in the novel is that they also recognize a yearning in one another. And if, I don't think they'd ever put it into words, but it's a it's a deep kind of emotional knowledge that each is yearning Mm, to really mm. be seen and all the things that come with that. And yeah, I guess Mm -hmm, I wonder how mm -hmm. you thought about that and what you see when you watch boys interact on that level. Well, it will be the same. I think that's, that's why the kind of judgment system of, of societal exclusion is so dangerous and so toxic because it's like going it's like when you go into a prison as you as you mm-hmm. said then what, i can't remember your exact turn of phrase but they have deep emotional reservoirs right mm-hmm. they might not have the, the language that we have or that uh, or, or that our government wants them to have about you know rehab language the language of rehabilitation or or apology or or or, or you know um 
forgiveness that, 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 that you know a, a sort of watered down Christian vocabulary might wish them to have, but it doesn't mean that they don't you know it doesn't mean that they don't have it. It means that we need brilliant people, teachers, educators, carers, to decode it and 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 work harder, frankly, to, to to communicate. You know, it's 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 more of a challenge, but the rewards are even greater. I think if you just write, you know, that's why I'm so committed to literacy in this country because literacy rates have plummeted, and the social data is exact that if you deny people literacy, you are condemning them to all the injustices that follow. You know, worse access to the job market, worse performance at school. It's the same in America, I know. Um, you know incarceration, alcoholism, abuse. And so the decision to do that, because it is an ideological decision, is, I think, just so unambitious on behalf of all of us as, as a civilization. Why would you, why would you give up <laughs> on huge swathes of your population for whatever reason, be it, you know, like ranging from white supremacy to pure snobbery to pure laziness? I think the opposite effort, which is to think, right, these are people that society has given up on. They've given up on society. They've done things which by any moral metric are, place them outside society. That, that's, that's, the cha- that's the great job, right? <laughs> to reach, to communicate, to give them a vocabulary and so on and so forth. So I, yeah, I, I found myself unex- sort of unexpectedly loving these kids um, because I felt that I'd be writing them, I, I, or I suppose I, I worried that I'd be writing them from a, from a place of moral condemnation. And I didn't, and, and but also mm. non-judgment. You know, I don't want to judge these boys, and especially not the ones that are feeling suicidal. Mm. That was one of my primary concerns: was not to belittle that feeling in them, to recognise it and hear it, and even and even in some senses agree with it. You know, from a from a secular and spiritual point of view, to really say, I get that, and you're not alone. You know, um, you're literally not alone because there's an epidemic of male suicide here and elsewhere. But you're not alone from a from an existential point of view. As long as there have been humans on this planet, some of them have felt that it isn't worth doing, that it isn't that this life is a trick or is cruel, and that they want to escape from it. And I really wanted to create a space where they could hear that for each other. Um, yeah, go on. Well, I was just gonna I was gonna ask you when you say this is why you're so committed to literacy. I wonder if that is, do you mean the fluency with reading? Or do you mean that's the building block to reading the kind of literature, reading the kind of books that, in which you see yourself? Or are, are, are you just saying, yes, an ease and a fluency with being able to read? Um, all three. I mean, mm. both, all of them, all of the above. I mean, I think, the, you know, if you can't read, you know, adult literacy in this country is, 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 is something that needs more investment and more time. Because if you can't read, you can't fill in that job application. And in, in a sort of weaponized immigration system, you're also saying to people, if you don't speak English and don't have fast broadband and a printer, then you stand less of a chance of being given humane treatment by a, by, by a system, you know, hell-bent on punishing or, or, or eradicating you. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, basic, basic literary skills as, as access to the shared benefits of, of a welfare state. But also, yeah, I mean, being more ambitious, what, literature is still such an astonishing tool. I mean, increasingly astonishing, right? Uh, there have been lots of fear over the last few years that sort of books are getting less relevant, right? Like, you know, that compared to other content, how will literature tread water? How will it keep itself relevant? I think it becomes ever more relevant mm-hmm. and radical as a tool yeah. because you are literally traveling across time and space, across these borders that we're building, across the walls, which we are all literally building up around our countries and our economic blocks and able to feel as another person feels. And I'm not getting that on Elon Musk's Twitter or on, on, on <laughs> oh, al- really? algorithmically determined <laughs> playlists, you know? Like, uh. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm becoming one of those people that, that really, really would give, you know, I, I, would, I would give every penny that I make from my books to someone that is dedicating themselves as the teachers in this book are to, to helping people find them, to helping people discover that extraordinary superpower that, that that is the empathy the complicated empathy machine at the heart of reading yeah you know when you were when you were talking about incarceration i was thinking about this wonderful 
a project here that got a got some big funding from I think it's called a million books and it's oh. uh, a poet started it and it is bringing these um, books into prisons but with these clever ideas of creating these kind of little mobile so you don't have to wait for the book cart there's these little mobile bookshelves uh, at the end of the blocks and they've also made sure that they are making these books accessible for the people that work in the prisons too because there's yeah, a yeah, language of communication between the people who are absolutely. incarcerated and the people who are with them all day it's such a great mm, kind mm. of radical i mean radical project yeah like a radical old-fashioned project right like they're the best right. sort right <laughs> It's right. a little bit like giving people seeds and telling them to plant things. Like mm. it, the old ways do work really well, especially because there is no, there is no powerful vested interest there. There is no one who is going to benefit from that book being taken into that cell and then perhaps even discussed with the person who holds the keys to that cell. Like that is simply an exchange of human enthusiasms and interests and curiosity. I think it's um, brilliant. Yeah, there's, co there's comparable projects over here. Mm. One of the things I think you've you've made sure that we understand in the novel is that Shy is loved. I mean, his mother tries again and again to reach him, even though he lashes out at her with what's kind of intimidating and scary fury. And there's this heartbreaking... I, I found this scene really heartbreaking, where he's as he's about to go off to the last chance boarding school... His mother is worried that he's going to be in the company of, quote, very disturbed young men. Will you, will you describe that scene and what he says to her, which I've thought about so often since I finished the novel? Well, really? Well, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. um, well, she lists from a sort of terrified parental point of view the type of people that may be in that institution. And... He says, and she, she says that you are, she, she believes that he is not like that. He is not one of them. What she has is the classic parental view that her child is there for different reasons and isn't to be, to be kind of put in the same category criminally as these other people. She says, you're just lost. And he says, I'm not lost, mum. I'm exactly where I got myself, which is kind of a progressive point of point of view right it's kind mm -hmm. of a surprisingly from a sort of philosophical point of view it's quite an interesting thing for a kid to say to a parent especially in the whole course of the novel up to this point he's said very little mm -hmm. you know he's yelped right. and screamed and cursed and, and and said i don't know i don't know but it's actually kind of incredible for him to just turn around and say no i am who i am and i am where i am um and then he says so i'm going to take I'll, I'll have it i'll have I'll, I'll take the last chance um and it's sort of, yeah, it's a sort of almost like a, the, the knees give way. The mm -hmm. sort of, it, it, the statue melts, right? There's a sort of give. And it's an extraordinary give, gift to give his mum, I think. And I, I, what I, happens in this life is you witness these encounters, right? And we, we would all have, we'd have them often. Every day of our lives, we witness someone, perhaps not, in fact, this is right where we started in this conversation, Kerry, someone not delivering the kind of pre-existing verbal response to a situation that we expect from their position in society or you know whether they're a bust collector or a, or a prison guard or a, or an angry kid having a tantrum there's a pivot right there's a slight sidestepping as if you've been gifted uh, a, a directorial viewpoint outside as if you've been suddenly zoomed out of the situation and seen that actually if you just wait and say something else or borrow uh, someone else's knowledge or someone else's think thinking that you might actually move forward better or move forward more generously. Or, or, you know, it's a bit, I'm reading this book at the moment about gentleness as a force, as courage, hmm. as a sort of antidote um, to, to violence and, and how actually it might be our, it might be the true human thing, gentleness. Actually, what defines us might be gentleness rather than violence. So it's a sort of redesign of how we think about life. And it's a beautiful book. But I think that's it. That at the end of this book, I wanted to show that actually Shai has been listening and he does have within him, borrowed from his teachers and his mates and his exasperated parents and indeed from, you know, 
uh, a, a mystical <laughs> visitation from <laughs> from a non-human entity or whatever you know. It's a Max <laughs> Porter book, so stuff like that's happening. Um, that he doesn't he doesn't have fact have a vocabulary and it's and that's actually with buried within it is a gift to his mother which is some kind of release from the prison of her own anxiety about him um, yeah. so I'm, I'm glad you flagged it up it seems to me an important point in the book it, it's um boy the way you the way you just described kind of the knees buckling you know when he said when she's like oh this is the school is full of very disturbed young men and he with this mm. heartbreaking self-awareness says mom i am a very disturbed young man i mean for a parent to hear that opens a mm. world that i'm sure his mother any parent would find an abyss right kind of a frightening abyss to look mm. into mm. yeah and, and and the abyss well the reason i i wanted to do it there is because we've seen how he plunges himself in, you know, like the violent scene after the sort of drug-fueled sex scene. <laughs> sorry for sorry for listeners to have to just hear us describe the book this way, but there is a, there is a joyful moment when he's uh, gone to a rave and is then in, in, in having a sexual encounter that he, he says to himself, this is as good as it gets, this is heaven. Mm-hmm. And then he does something inexplicably violent and flings himself into an abyss, and he doesn't know why. And I think what these things are all training him in is a better sense of accepting that he might not know why, but recognising the signs within himself that the abyss is ever-present. And, and frankly, I know I'm not writing that scene, as I say, from a kind of purient point of view of like, oh, look how teenagers behave. I'm genuinely wanting us all as adults to recognise that we are, we are the same. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I mean about my yeah. flipping out to the kid. The abyss is right there. I don't want to sound like, you know, um, Sam Harris's mindfulness app here, but there is an extraordinary benefit gifted to us from whatever meditation, wisdom, experience, literature, uh, to pause before the abyss and to realize that we are, that, that the edge of it is crowded with others very like us uh, or, or crucially not like us and just make that effort, make that gesture. Um, and if that's sort of wildly sentimental of me to suggest that, then so be it. I think it's, um, yeah, it's it felt necessary to me after I'd done the, I'd, after I'd done the hard work of creating all his pain and all his agony. I wanted to gift him with with something like a a communicative a communicative gift, you know. And I know people like this. You know, my brother was very very unhappy as a teenager, and is now a deeply deeply caring and compassionate and wise person of enormous value to the people around him. But he was all pain and rage for a long time, self destruction oh. and hmm. rage. You know, but that put in put in an oak barrel that that vinegar turns to sweet, <laughs> sweet Rioja. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and he's not he's not he's not. A, I wouldn't describe my brother as a, as a surface level happy person. He's complicated and complex. Uh-huh. Um, but what he has what he has in, in his inner arsenal of emotional weaponry is something really profoundly useful to others because he's seen he's seen that abyss. Is he raising teens? He is raising teenage uh-huh. girls. See, it's karmic. <laughs> it all comes back around, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've asked you to read a, an excerpt, but I, I really think it needs a little conversation about, I don't know, the, the maelstrom of music and uh, bravado and fear and half-coherent impressions that, that we're getting as we kind of walk with shy out of the school. Mm. Um, so, so give us a little context for, for how to understand what we're going to hear. Okay, well, he, so he's left the school at 3 a.m. and he's got a backpack full of rocks and you draw your own conclusions about why he would be carrying a backpack full of rocks. And he heads through the night, struggling with the weight and struggling with the memories and with all these voices in his head, and we get some flashbacks to his recent criminal misdemeanors. And then at the sort of end of part one of the book, he gets to the pond. And then there's a sort of change of mood and a change of energy uh, about the book. Um, And this is just after he's got to the pond. Perfect. 
He mumbles a bass line to himself as he walks towards the edge of the pond and feels a flickering temptation to rewind, backwards squeal up the field to bed, to dreams, to Steve and Amanda and the boys, to revision and breakfast baps on Saturdays and making mixtapes in his pillow, his duvet, his... His feet are in. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Wow. Cold water. Jesus. He's very stoned. He is off the wire-clad plank and into the gunky shallows, firm underfoot but slippy, and his trainers and socks are straightaway wet through as he shuffles forward. The ground is a bit softer as he gets in up to his knees. His ripples move calmly out. Nothing is quacking or flapping. The pond is asleep. It's squelchy now. His jeans are heavy. It's not as cold as he thought it would be, but it's pretty chilly. Little trickles and lapping drip-plop sounds from the wading body in the water up to his waist. Max Porter reading from his new novel, Shy. Um, we have to talk about, we heard a little bit of your, your musical accompaniment there. Um, the music that pulses <laughs> through the book. You know, as I, as I kind of dipped in and out of being really conscious of the music, I, I was thinking how different instruments express, you know, different characters and voices, including some of the ghosts that pop up. And, you know, some of that music sounded discordant and out of, like instruments that were out of tune, to me mm. um d- yeah mm. does that make sense well yeah a hundred percent and I'm, I'm grateful for the observation yeah I, I, I at times wanting something very very discordant and at times i'm wanting the pure ambient noise or noise of, of electronic music trying to tear your skull off you know trying to t- trying to you know in, in a kind of science fiction soundtrack sense trying to deeply unnerve and then I want to slip straight into something incredibly jumpy and positive and then militarily disciplined, you know, the two-step boom, clack, boom, clack of late 90s drum and bass. And also very, a very soulful music as well, you know, as he describes himself, sometimes jazzy, sometimes soulful, sometimes reggae, sometimes, you know, sometimes half-speed swaggering like the hip-hop music that it grew out of. And I, um, that, that's, that's why he loves this music so much, because it is all things to all shies. It, it moves with him. It embraces him. You know, the world keeps saying no, and this music keeps on saying, yeah, come on in. Um, you know, his wildest, most disturbing nightmares are met in these horrible, discordant soundscapes. And then his most joyful, loves himself, feels loved, has a future, has a sense of himself, is met in this marching, snapping bass line and, and drums magic, which is jungle, which is the music he loves. Um, and it was fun to write that for him. It was fun to tether his despair and his unhappiness to something so joyful and, and um, springy and um, welcoming. Um, but yeah, I hope that there's a kind of syncopation existing between the music in his head, my writing about it occasionally and, and the way the book acts on you as a rhythmical entity as you're reading it. I do really care about that. I really want my books to be rhythmical. You know, I, I think I, I know I've heard junglist music before, but I, I'd never seen it called junglist music. So in a nod to listeners who may also be like, what, okay, what does it sound like? I asked if we could, um, we'd play some Congo Natty is that okay? And we'd oh, listen yeah. to it? That'll do. Okay, good. Let's listen. Too black. Too strong. Because from the hood I came into the hood, I must return. So Max, it sounds like you've been I'm, doing. I'm beaming. I'm, beaming <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I added that to my uh, Spotify playlist after I dredged that up. Um, <laughs> I need that. Good. I need that for some morning runs. 
Uh, yeah. You have been doing some events where you're playing junglist music. I, I'd love to hear how this how this is working. Yeah, I mean, God, that was such a good piece to choose, by the way, because it's good. got all the crispness, it's got all the newness. It still sounds like the future. It, it sounds does. like drum machines, it but it also sounds like drums. It's got the jazz, it's got the reggae, it's got the kind of dance hall toasting going on. <laughs> Absolutely delightful. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so well, I've done it all actually. I, I didn't, I didn't limit myself necessarily to jungle and drum and bass. I, I, I had some experimental ambient uh, musicians with me. I had a, a jazz bass player. I had a kind of post-punk Flemish bass player. I had the other day in Canada. I did an event with Feist. Wow. Um, Feist sang while while her or one of her collaborators played bass and clarinet. So it, it doesn't necessarily need to be shy's music. What I've discovered is that any music allows me to bring out different elements of the book. So sometimes, you know, the other night with Leslie, I was, was very much in the space of Shai's mum and that mm. pain. And, I, and I, sometimes I just wasn't even reading the book. I was improvising. I was just, I was just sort of speaking around and as and under Shai's mum to try and communicate with this boy. Um, other times, yeah, I mean, it, other times it has been pure, like that music you just played for, you know, 45 minutes and I, and I've, and I've danced around it in it. Um, let the, let the book sit into it, into that BPM other times pushed against it to, as, as, as we were saying, to create this kind of syncopation between the language and the music. What it does for me is just give the audience, cause they're all unique. I never repeat the same thing. And it gives the audience this, I mean, I'm borrowing really, I'm borrowing greedily from music's ability to get into the heart, into the body. Um, but I'm also, because I'm trying to write, this very bodily, um, you know, the, the sort of smells and senses and guttural lurches and sort of swerves of Shai's mind and his life. I, I hope it is quite a bodily reading experience. So any kind of collaborative undertaking on stage like that, I'm just, I'm just like, let's get some energy in the room. Let's, let's, mm -hmm. let's like exacerbate the problem of Shai. Let's enhance the problem of Shai using the tools of, of bass, which is felt in the chest or of those drum patterns, which are felt in the, in the brain. And, in, you know, I, I just, I guess I'm just trying to complicate the tapestry to, um, to deepen the investigation for, especially cause it, I love the idea that it's just for that. It's just for the bodies in the room, mm -hmm. you know, then there's, and there's accident, there's jeopardy, there's things can go wrong. Things can be, I might have to really scream, <laughs> you know, um, and I like that. It's, it's fun and it's also, it's, it's sort of, um, it means that Shai's rage is somehow kind of an entity, to, a palpable entity in, uh, on stage, um, as is his tenderness. And that's, that's where I'm at. I mean, trying to coax those two things out and see how they are connected. You know, it made me wonder what Shai at 35 or 40 hears this music that just, you know, expressed his rage and what he feels because music is so, so intertwined, so embedded in memory. Mm, mm, I mean, mm. I know, there, I'm sure there are songs you can hear the first three notes and you know exactly where you were and what you were doing and how you felt. Yeah, yeah. And you have that bodily, that physical memory of it. But, mm. you know, Shy, I think, I think Shy's going to grow up and he may always have an affection for this kind of music, but he'll grow mm. away as we do from the, right? Yeah. Um, wonder what he'll think. I think he'll, he'll like, well, like me, I hope he'll have more eclectic tastes. I, you know, I, I had more eclectic tastes back then than he does. I, I, had, I had the great like, gift of an uncle that lived in Ethiopia and was sending me back great African music. And I had, I loved jazz and I loved reggae. You know, I, I love folk music and all that. So I hope that Shy will become more eclectic because then you're just increasing your, the range of things that thrill you and delight you, right? And you're, 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 you're increasing your emotional range yourself. You know, you don't always need to be going completely mad hard at it. But when I listen now to that, the, like some, you played quite a joyful and happy piece of yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. Some of the very, very dark stuff, which has like, as I say, kind of Blade Runner style um, very, you know, bleeding edge drone synths, and then and then the beats are hard, hard, and they compete in the school. You know, what is hardest, what is darkest, what is what is most brutal. You know, the vocabulary of this music is is one of hurt. When I listen to that music now, I feel grateful to have had it as part of my emotional repertoire back then, and and find 
oddly worried that I don't have it now. Do you know what I mean? I, like, I sort of mm. ask myself, oh no, have I just been sort of, have I just sort of been slipped into or co-opted into or, or sort of, um, you know, like, like um, hypnotized into adult life where I'm actually not exploring <laughs> that range anymore. Uh-huh. You know, because I can't. I've got the kids. I'm trying to cook a meal. Mm. I've, got to, I've got to take someone to soccer practice. So I can't be, you know, I can't be accessing my inner, you know, rave demon. But actually, it's important <laughs> to. I mean, one of the things that Shai shouts about is the kind of fakery of adult life, the banality of it. And he's right. Like, he's right. Like, why aren't we all rage, raging at the dying of the light? You know, why aren't we all screaming about how weird it is that our politicians are allowed to just lie to us on TV day in, day out? Like, there's something in his howl of pain that is deeply correct. And that if that music helps him get there and can remind us that we were there and even possibly even, as I say, kind of smash open our complacency, then great. I want it. You know, I want it on my, I want it on my playlist too. Do you think you're your sons would believe there is an inner rave demon that lurks in dad? I'm really sorry to say I don't keep him that well hidden. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Um, well, because I, I, you know, like I'm someone that like, this is back to the honesty thing, you know, and, and thank you for bringing, bringing the conversation full circle like that. Because I, for example, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to, I want to, cry on NPR or anything right but the thing that moves me most in this world now is the simple thing of sitting down to feed my children like I I I regularly burst into tears at the sheer beauty and miracle of me having stayed alive to have these children with the person I love and that we can eat this meal and it's every day freshly a bomb, sort of bombardment that I can't handle. And that not being able to handle it feels quite close to how I was 16 and just couldn't handle the strangeness of the world and needed to hide in the music. So they see me play loud music and go a bit wild and dance around the kitchen and go a bit mad and cling them and bring, come down, come down, listen to this, listen to this, you've got to hear this, you've got to see this, you've got to see this on me. I'm not pretending to be this big, responsible, armor-plated simulacra of, of me that is their dad. I am mm. me, and they've got to see it, and I want them to see it, and I, in turn, will see them. You know, I, I, it feels like music is a gateway, as literature should be, to to a sort of a better exchange, a better, uh, riskier, certainly, and sometimes, you know, I'm sure for them, wildly embarrassing <laughs> exchanges of, of truths, of values. Um, but yeah, it's like a, it's like a, um, yeah, it's like a. Um, access to the higher, you know, music is the higher, higher consciousness, you know, that's why people equate it so readily with the divine. And if I can have the divine in all its forms, which includes the deeply profane, you know, hideously noisy, you know, thrash metal version of it, then I want that. Hmm. I want that not just in my headphones, I want them to see me have that. I want them to see me love it as much as I do. You know, same as they see me weep <laughs> on a Sunday night because I miss my, miss my granny or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like you spend a little time on Elon Musk's Twitter, yeah? Because I saw a tweet from you, I think it was last <laughs> September, that said, "God, I loved writing this painful book." And of course, that tweet sounded mm. elated somehow, and it made me wonder mm. if um, there's something notable about that because every writing experience is not. Not so elative, elation. No. What's the word I'm looking for? Elating. No. I am, yeah, I, I am. I am. I, I am hunting elation. It's funny you would say no. that because it's been a word that's been in my head recently. I am. I am seeking it, and I. I love the hard work because then the elation is higher. I love difficult edits that I can't figure out, and I lie awake at night. And my wife would attest to the fact that I become tetchy and on edge when I'm dealing with these problems and she's like you'll just get you know don't worry you'll sit down at your desk tomorrow and you'll figure it out and one does or doesn't but the 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 the, the rush the uplift is so worth it right I mean it, it's the same when I find I'm finding human company difficult I, I open the newspaper I'm appalled I'm drenched in shame and worry and, and anxiety I'm terrified and then I just walk around the block and just get chatting to some old person and have the most delightful, eccentric, surprising conversation, you know. And, hmm. and then and then you get that little, you know, you're like Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. You know, you're suddenly like, oh, it is worth it. It is so beautiful. It is so funny and so beautiful and so worth it. You know, and, and, and that's like, that's today's elation. And I will seek it out, you know. 
Um, and, and, it, and, and it is tethered to, to being a relatively depressive or an- anxious person. Like I am profoundly bleak in my outlook about human beings, but that is the flip side of being joyful and grateful. And, and that, you know, that's why the, the, the books have to have these white, they have to be blackly funny, I hope, like darkly funny at the same time as they are really, really serious. They have to be lusciously sentimental at the same time as they are, I hope, rigorous in, in their philosophical outlook. I, I, I want both. I'm greedy and moved. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm greedily mm-hmm. moved by the world. Um, yeah, they're sentimental, but they're spiky. by it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah. That that's how I think of them. They're they're sentimental, but they're sharp. They hurt. Yeah, good. Yeah, thank you. Good. I appreciate okay, that. that's it. <laughs> I want that. Yeah. Um, the the last time that we we talked, which was when grief is a thing with feathers came out. Of course, we talked about poetry, and I remembered because it kind of sent me into this. Uh, I added some Jory Graham to my reading. And of course, um, you'd been reading, yeah, yeah, you'd been reading Emily Dickinson and Graham and some others. Is that, was that because, I I guess, are you a frequent reader of poetry or was that what you were surrounding yourself with as you wrote that novel? And if so, what are you reading now? Hmm. Yes, it was. And I've always kept poetry as the thing I won't write and I won't, didn't publish and I won't review or anything like that it's my private place and i'm getting better at, at realizing actually what a what a almost i don't want to speak of it as a discipline or a difficulty etc but that that it is it is the, the place in which i might grow like the harder i work at reading poetry the better i will be as a human being and as, an, as a writer i think i think that's my that's my kind of optimistic take on it um and so I was reading a lot. I'd stopped reading during the pandemic. I don't know what happened in lockdown, wow. but I lost my focus and my appetite for reading really? poetry. I don't know why. Huh. Um, and then I came back to it. Um, and actually, there were a few kind of gateway drugs that, that I relied on to get me back, actually. And Jory, it's funny you mentioned Jory Graham. She was one of them. Hmm. Dickinson was another. Um, Alice Oswald, the British poet, was another. That I suddenly was like, all right, <laughs> this is what this is what it is. This is this is this is felt deeply felt, and I can feel the kind of rusty hinges of my brain cracking back open again. And that's fine. Like I, I don't, I, you know, we 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 can't turn it on, right? It, you, you've got to just you've got to wait and see, and you and you can't force yourself to to love the things that you used to love. They might they might be gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I read. Um, I, I'm reading books about trees. <laughs> Excellent. I just read a Catalan a Catalan poet recommended me a book, which maybe a lot of your listeners might remember, because it's published by Grey Wolf Press, the great mm-hmm. Minneapolis independent, who, who I'm so proud and, and fortunate to call my publisher still. Uh, it's the letters between James Wright, the poet, and Leslie Marmon Silk, the novelist, oh, wow. poet, writer, wow, Native American legend, you know. And it's called the, I think it's called the frailty and strength of sip of lace or something like that. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the durability and strength of lace or something. And maybe it's out of print, but you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Maybe Grey Wolf will reprint it following maybe, our conversation. And I maybe. Can, <laughs> I can hand sell it to people. But it, they, they only met twice in their life. Once very briefly. And they weren't close. They didn't have a long encounter. They just met at a thing. And then once after, after these years of writing each other these astonishing letters, they met once as James, James Wright lay dying. And they are the most informal but important, um, witty but serious, generous but not sycophantic. They are just a, an, it's an exchange of such gravity and such generosity. It's, an, it's, a, it's a sumptuous and beautiful book and made me think so much about the gift of meeting incredible people in this life and how, and how wonderful it is to, to think of, of that really on your even at the end of your life just to think i have met some people wow i have met some people you know and the efforts that perhaps we were better at making in the old days oddly because we had fewer ways to communicate but like i love letters i love the exchange of letters and it just made me want to run to my emails or, or my postcard box and just pour out missives not 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 <laughs> profound missives not uh-huh. you know just, just hellos, just greetings, you know, mm. just, just, just warm wishes. I just wanted to beam warm, warm wishes around the world. 
Max, I've loved our conversation. I thought we could close with uh, a song that I guess I think expresses the sensibility of your last novel, and it's Sizzla, Just One of Those Days. Is that cool? Oh, this is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you. Charm, the perfume still linger. Oh, damn, remember, girl. 